Now, these last six weeks, we've been reflecting on joy as an essential, not an optional, but an essential element of Christian life. And we've been doing this in conversation with the prophet Isaiah. As we conclude the series today, we're going to concentrate on a final theme of joy that begs for attention. Joy, you see, is not something that God wants just for each of us. It's not something that God wants just for this church. It is something that God has for the whole world. That's what God has in mind. There's no better place to explore this theme than Isaiah chapter 60. So I would ask you to keep a Bible close by, if you would. Now, the words of Isaiah 60 were first spoken to the ancient Israelite people in a period of their exile. That was about 2,500 years ago. Uh, It was an exile uh, perpetrated by Babylon. Babylon was the regional superpower at that time, and just like any big empire, it loved to gobble up all the little nations that lived around it. And so the Israelites wound up as a conquered people. It was a nasty event. Warfare and conquest in the ancient Near East were savage. Many Jews were killed. Others were enslaved and deported. People like Daniel, for example, deported into Babylon where they became servants and second-class citizens. Now, on one level, Isaiah 60 speaks into that harrowing situation. It looks to a change of fortunes, to a restoration. Isaiah is saying that there is light at the end of a very dark tunnel. Yet Isaiah is saying more. Isaiah's imagery points to something infinitely greater. That's how commentator Barry Webb puts it. This vision is far too grand to point to a mere return from exile in Babylon. You see, in truth, it's almost like Isaiah has his hands on a telescope uh, and he's, he's able to see through that into the future. And what he gets is a scintillating glimpse of God's ultimate intention for the redemption of the world. And there's a lot of light imagery in this passage. You may have noticed that from the reading. But Isaiah is not talking about just an everyday sunrise. He's not talking about a sun or a light that's rising which illuminates the road back to Israel for the people in exile. He's talking about light that reveals or unveils a road to a new world. A healed creation, a world marked by joy from age to age. Beautiful turn of phrase, verse 15. And so what Isaiah says is relevant for us. It's not just for ancient Israel. It's about joy that God has planned for the whole world. As we grapple with this declaration, here's how it might be encapsulated. God's future is better than our past and even our present. God's future is different from any future we can make. That's why it's better. And God's future also offers present joy. God's future is better, it's different, and it offers present joy. Feel free to smile at me if you would. (laughs) The future is better than the past. Look at verses 1 and 2. Arise and shine, for your light has come. Somebody needs to sing this, right? And the glory of the Lord has arisen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness all the peoples. But the Lord shall arise upon you, and his glory shall be seen among you. I want you to underline that verse in your Bible. I know they're not your Bibles, but I want you to go ahead and underline it. Somebody will thank you later. This is a glorious message. In a world of darkness, God's going to bring light. He's going to vacuum up all the darkness and cast it outside the universe. You see, just like sunlight, God's own light is a wonderful disinfectant. Now, in these verses, darkness, which also appears, darkness is another name. It's an Old Testament turn of phrase for the effects of sin in creation. And biblically speaking, sin, it's a word you hear around church, often misunderstood. Sin is not just being naughty. It's not just breaking rules. Sin actually refers to the fact that our lives constantly unfold in violation of the purpose for which they were made. Much more comprehensive. And as a result of that, we create pollution. 
morally, relationally, ecologically, politically, the list goes on and on. Sin is why minds are torn apart by ambition. It's why relationships are ripped apart by betrayal. It's why the dignity of humans is eroded, people living homeless and hungry at a personal level. Sin is why despite the fact that I've been a Christian for many years, I'm still filled with longing. I haven't changed as I've yearned to change. My desires and urges are skewed. My body perplexes me. Friends, we're talking about the perennial darkness of the world. It is why there will be times, maybe right now is a time like this for you, when we will weep in our hearts and in our homes because sin ruins things. It ruins us. Times when we cry out to God, what are you going to make of all of this? What are you going to do with the cities and the cultures and the lives that we've broken? We're going to cry out those words. And right now, here in Isaiah 60, God is answering that plea. He's saying that sin and all of its ugly symptoms are going to lose out ultimately. Not just individually, not just in this church, but on a worldwide scale. God will act to foil it. The past and the, the, the present, the future is so much better. The doctor is on the way. This is a theme that's sprinkled throughout this beautiful text. I cannot survey every verse and explain it and unpack it, but let me just mention a few. First, verse 11, poetic picture of the future here. Isaiah is a marvelous poet. Your gates shall be opened continually. Day and night they will not be shut, but people shall bring the wealth of the nations into them. Now, in the ancient world, this is, this is not that difficult to understand. Gates were about protecting a city, right? Protecting the socioeconomic interest of the city. The very existence of gate presupposes the brutal competition that does so often dominate our world, a competition that leaves, frequently leaves some people swimming in gold and others scrounging for crumbs. In God's future, it's not going to be like that anymore. The gates are always open. Thievery and plunder are things of the past. They're just a memory because everybody's needs are met. Verse 16, also stunning. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. What an image. In Old Testament times, the little nation of Israel was, was small and weak. That is why it was often hounded by its neighbors, but now things are different. Isaiah sees the strong tenderly caring for the weak instead of consuming them. That's a reversal. Praying on the weak has given way to praying with the weak, praying for the weak. And then there's the end of verse 17. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. I'd like to work for those guys. In God's future, every manager is a friend. They're looking out for your interests. They're promoting your flourishing so that you can develop as God desires. Now, in all of this, all this stunning imagery, there's something that really must be understood. The vision is global. It's cosmic. You cannot miss this. Throughout this passage, the kings of the nations, we read about different kings and different nations all lining up to enter God's new city. These kings should not be understood as individuals. They are representatives of every culture on the world. In other words, God's future is not about getting rid of the world, but about redeeming it. The best of every culture will have a place, for God so loves the world. What Isaiah says is not just good news for ancient Israel. It is much more expansive. That's why Isaiah speaks so much about they and them, not just me and we. God's intention is to ensure that the future of the world is better than the past or the present that's a happy prospect, but do we really believe it? Does it really raise our spirits? Does it put a skip in our step, like when you walk down these steps over here because of their funny shape? Right? Does it put a skip into your step? Will it carry our confidence? Will we cast our vote for this? 
Perhaps we're not all that impressed with what God intends to do as, as he's revealed it through Isaiah. I mean, it's a pleasant vision, but isn't it superfluous? Isn't it redundant? I mean, look around. Things have been bad in the world for sure, but they're getting better. We're lifting ourselves. We live in the Western first world, an age of remarkable scientific and technological advancement. We've got democratic societies. We've got advanced social welfare systems. With enough time and enough resource, we can redress all of the world's woes. We're on our way to being just like Norway and Sweden. And they're on their way to being a utopia. Mankind come of age. Now against that type of outlook, what Isaiah is saying doesn't actually seem that bright and attractive. I mean, sure, God's intentions are nice. This is a, an attractive picture. But on our own, we're doing some pretty sweet things too. That's called, the, the perspective I just introduced is called the progress narrative. It's got its roots in the 18th century enlightenment of Northern Europe. And while there's a lot of good in that, uh, and it still has a grip on our attitudes, a lot of good in it, but I want to poke some holes. I want to poke some holes in that narrative so that we can see that God's future is infinitely better. Got a few case studies. I made a whole list of them this week. I had to pick two. Representative. A couple years ago, a landmark economics book was published, Capital in the 21st Century. It's written by Thomas Piketty. Everybody respects his research. Piketty traces and documents and highlights the growing inequality in our world and especially in our society. A higher percentage of overall wealth is increasingly ending up in the hands of the 1%. Why? Because their wealth is not earned by labor. It's amassed through investment income. And the annual rate of return on investment income is about 4 or 5%, whereas the annual rate of economic growth is just 3%. That means that dynastic fortunes, the wealth of great families, grows faster than the economy. And consequently, the super-rich take an ever-accumulating share of the overall wealth. It's called patrimonial capitalism. That's what he calls it. That's not a good thing. It means that a lot of power is put into the hands of a very small number of people. In the ancient world, it was called oligarchy. Something actually similar happened uh, in France, pre-World War II. It was called the Belle Epoque. That's the name of that era. It was a bit scandalous because French society at that time, at least in principle, was totally committed to equality. But they didn't practice it. They didn't live up to their standards. The policies that were needed to really improve life for ordinary people were systematically blocked by the wealthy. Thomas Piketty says it's happening again, too, right now for us. We've got an ideology of equality, but we're not practicing it. We told ourselves we don't want to be like old Europe, but we are. Economist Paul Krugman puts it like this. We're becoming the type of society that we imagine we're nothing like. Wow. Another example from thought leader and cultural critic Rusty Reno makes the same point in a slightly different way. He, he laments the impotence that seems to be typifying our culture. Now, it's no secret that our societies here in this part of the world increasingly operate without much reference to God. And as a result, we tend to approach all of our problems from a technocratic outlook. It's about managing the problems with our technology. Here's what Reno writes. It's pretty jarring. Faced with rising rates of out-of-wedlock births, our society, we shun moralism and religion. We don't want to blame the victim. That's a good thing, yes. But all we can do besides that is to, appro uh, is to oppose technocratic solutions. For example, long-acting reversible contraceptives. We can implant them into teenage girls, and perhaps that technology can mitigate the collapse of stable households in poor communities, preventing births. That's the most we can hope for. Cultural change is impossible. And he goes on, he says, we've heard no bold call to address the terrible increase in heroin overdose deaths. And given that we cannot simply arrest our way out of this problem, we turn to Narlocks 
and a continuous stream of ambulances that flow from slum to hospital and back. We'll manage the best we can, largely without the hope that we can really affect significant change. We find ourselves deeply constrained, unable to respond to problems we're convinced can't really be solved. Our public culture is characterized by limited horizons that found that find countless reasons why nothing big or new or bold can be done. And so sustainability becomes our default aspiration. In a world without God, listen to this, in a world without God, tomorrow can only be a recycled version of today. There are many other such examples. You see, it comes to this. The better world that we're always striving to build is constrained by crippling limitations. We can't get out of certain boxes. Our culture struggles to dream of seeing problems undone. The best we can hope is to manage them. More tragically, however, the solutions that we offer to our problems are often riddled with self-defeating flaws. We plug in one hole and another one pops out. Our efforts to improve things seem to continually turn in on themselves. It's like pesticides. We created pesticides to help boost crop yield, to feed more people at a lower cost, but the solution has created its own problems. Damage to the earth, damage to the very bodies that we are seeking to nourish. When it comes to human efforts, something seems to be wrong with everything. You see? A sober assessment, a sober assessment of ourselves, of our condition, for me, brought to mind the words of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Society never really advances. It recedes as fast on one side as it gains on the other. For everything that is given, something is taken away. Compared to the majestic future that God is going to create, the future that is painted right here in Isaiah, our efforts, all of our efforts are a mere stumbling forward while falling back two or three steps. And so if our hope for a better future is grounded in ourselves, in our civilization, well, that's not a very good hope. Which is why Isaiah says that for the darkness to be vanquished, the Lord himself is going to have to intervene. To echo one scholar, the future that is portrayed right here in this chapter, it does not arise from favorable historical conditions or the evolution of society, but depends directly on acts of God. Or put another way, God's future is better because it's different. It's different from anything that we could do. That's why it's better. Let's meditate on this. It's the second point. According to Isaiah, the better world that God is going to establish is going to come not through manipulation, not through brute force, but through grace. You see, God's not Babylonian, God's not Roman, God's not British, God's not American. He's not like any human empire. God does not do real politic to make the world a better place. He does not achieve order and peace through manipulation and brute force. That's what the Babylonians were trying to do when they sacked the Israelites. They were trying to stabilize the region. God doesn't work that way. How do we know? It's in the text. Look at verse 9. The coastland shall hope for the Lord. In verse 6b, they shall bring forth gold and frankincense. They shall bring forth good news. They shall bring praises to the Lord. That's glad language. For praise is a mode of love which always has some element of joy right down in the center of it. Now, the point that's being made here, I don't want you to lose this. It's subtle, but it's profound. The nations are not gathering into God's city in a begrudging manner. When Babylon conquered all the people around it, it got their kings, their treasure, all their cultural artifacts, and it took them to Babylon, put them on parade. They had to present their kings and treasure to the Babylonian gods. But nobody was happy to be there. They hated the Babylonians. That's not what's happening here. It's glad language. 
there's harmony and goodwill. There's no resentment. There's no competition. There's no malice. This is a picture of a renewed world, not a world beaten into submission. This is the result of grace. And grace is what makes God's future so, so different from any future that we might attempt to engineer. That's why there's profuse joy in these verses. Grace is the mother of joy. Think about this. Since the beginning of civilization, humans have sought to impose order and peace in the world. The Romans sought it at the time of Jesus. It was called Pax Romana. That just means the peace of Rome. But the peace of Rome, just like the peace of Babylon, was built on brute force and manipulation. And that is why there wasn't much gladness in the peace of Rome. There was no real widespread joy. There was only smug satisfaction by those at the top. Isaiah is telling us that God's strategy for renewing the world is not like that. God's going to create order and harmony not by making everybody submit, but by making people beautiful from the inside out. That, that makes God's future qualitatively different from any future that we could make. You see, God's not just holding evil at bay. He's not just managing the world's problems to create some level of order. It is so much more than that. Glance at verse 19 and 20. Titillating prose. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord himself will be your everlasting life. Light God will be your glory. The sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord himself will be your everlasting light. Wow. Wow. That is a very potent metaphor. You see, the sun's light is what, think about this, it's what enables us to see everything else. You don't look at the sun. The sun rather determines our optics. It shapes the way our ability to see everything else. And so when Isaiah is saying that God's own light is going to replace the sun, he's talking about the advent of a radical new reality. It's going to change the way we see everything, the way we operate. One commentator says this, the deep inner principles that rule our lives will switch. Human nature will be changed. Or think of it like this, just as the, the sunshine outside affects remarkable change and growth in plants and trees and people, so too does God's own light affect remarkable growth and transformation in us. This is about being remade. This is the power of grace. Verse 17 lays it out. Instead of bronze, there's going to be gold. Instead of iron, there's going to be silver. God's not just polishing the, the bronze. He's not just cleaning the silver. He's transforming the metal. All of our legends about alchemy are coming true. When the Bible speaks of the desire of the nations, this is what it means. The nations together, not killing each other. Mourning has turned into dancing. The wall, there are walls in God's city. You read about them in verse 10 and 18. Those walls are no longer built to keep people from fighting. They're not built for defense. They're built for decoration. This is an atmosphere of cooperation, conviviality. Somebody get out the champagne because God has taken it to a whole new level. The ships of Tarshish. I hope I'm saying that right. It's kind of an awkward word to say. The ships of Tarshish. Verse 9. Shed a little bit more light on how this is going to happen. You see them pulling up into God's city. Now, that's a little bit perplexing. I'm sure some of you have already caught this. A little bit perplexing because in chapter 2, in chapter 23, you read about the ships of Tarshish. But you read that they will be brought low. They will be laid to waste. Yet here they are in verse 9. They're making a cameo. They're sailing into the harbor. What on earth? What in the water? 
Richard Mao explains it like this. He said, there's no, no need to read the negative passages, this negative language that we read here, as insisting that these pagan entities as such will be destroyed. In other words, Isaiah is not talking about annihilation so much as transformation. To be sure, transformation does involve some judgment. Judgment against everything that dehumanizes us. Judgment against those impulses in myself which ruin me and hurt others. God will judge those things. The horrors of the world will be removed. But that judgment is not just to destroy. It's to purify. It's to make whole. Richard Mouse says that it's more like breaking a horse than breaking a vase. You know, when you break a vase, it's done, right? Its beauty's done, unless you're kind of a postmodern artist and you can turn it into something, right? But when you break a vase, it's done. When you break a horse, it's just beginning. You enable it to move to a whole new level of existence, a higher level of purpose and beauty. God's future is a transformed future because it's a future that does not result from brute force and from manipulation, but from the power of grace. The world is thirsty for this grace. Look at verse 8. I love this little insertion. It says, who are these that fly like a cloud, like little doves to their windows? In other words, people see what's going on in this city and they want to be there, so they fly over, they zoom over and watch. I declare, what have we here? Those are southern doves. I want to see what's going on. What they witness is mind-blowing. It's captivating. Why? Because God has managed, listen to this, God has managed to create world peace and world harmony without sacrificing world joy. The Babylonians could never do that. The British could never do that. The UN can never do that. In this new world, says one scholar, connection with God is, is the thing that overshadows all the other political and ethnic identities by which people otherwise know themselves. That is why there is joy from age to age. Verse 15. According to Isaiah, what God has planned for the future is better than the past. It's also different. That's why it's better. It's different than anything we could do on our own. But at the same time, it's a future that produces present joy in us. Joy in us, joy for the world right now. Last point. We can taste the pie before it's time for dessert. This can be understood in two senses, an internal sense and an external sense. Let me expand on these briefly. Internal sense. Look at the very last line of the very last verse. I don't think there's a slide for it, so I'm going to read that a little bit slower. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. When God says something's going to happen, it will happen. The Bible is full of stories that make that point. To the degree that we embrace this promise with confidence, we can have some joy now. Why? Because joy is not just about receiving good things, but also awaiting good things. Foreseeing them, expecting them. The very nature of joy makes nonsense between our common distinction of having something versus yearning for it. That's C.S. Lewis. Case in point, my nephew Lawson, he turned three a couple weeks ago. We had a birthday party for him on Thursday night of that week. We were down in California and it involved a McDonald's Happy Meal and a chocolate cake. It was an apt week for his party because his health hadn't been good and he'd been feeling wearied by sickness in the few weeks leading up to that. Now we got down there, we told him on Sunday that we were going to be having a party for him later in the week. He actually didn't know it was his birthday, so we told him it was his birthday and then we told him that we were going to have a party for him. And we told him that party was going to involve a McDonald's Happy Meal and a chocolate cake. And I'm telling you, for the next four days, this kid was ecstatic and bouncing off the wall. All that weariness went to the back burner. The joy of anticipating that chocolate cake 
definitely rival the joy of actually eating the cake. And that's how it should be for us too. In a world that is often tormented, our lives are tormented, will we let ourselves be swept up by this? It can revitalize. It does offer present joy to a church and a world and to me who often feel weary. What Isaiah says also produces joy in sort of an external sense as well. So let me unpack this. Now, we've said that this chapter looks at a better world that God's going to make. It's something that we await. It's something we look forward to. But it's also something that has already started. That's what St. John tells us in his gospel in the New Testament in the first chapter. In that chapter, he takes up Isaiah's language right here in chapter 60, verse 1. That's where Isaiah says, Arise and shine, for your light has come. That's exactly what John has in mind when he writes these words. The true light which gives light to everybody, was coming into the world. God's better future is coming, and it's also already here. I'm from rural South Carolina. When I grew up, people would often invite me out to supper at their farm. So I'd drive out, and on more than one occasion, a few minutes before the meal would start, they'd call me on my mobile phone, and they'd say, uh, where are you? And I'd say, well, I'm here, by which I meant I'm actually on the farm. I've turned off, off of the main road, and I'm driving down the gravel road to their house, but it's off in a mile. I'm here but I'm not quite there. I'm here, but I'm not quite there. That's what we learn by reading Isaiah in light of John. Isaiah sees that something is going to happen. John sees that this same thing is happening. In fact, John sees that he is happening because John is writing about Jesus Christ, the one that is called God's light coming to a dark world, God's light coming into us right now, which is why the ultimate homecoming that we all long for can actually start today. Isaiah verse 5 says that God's, God's light is going to make us radiant. It's going to fill us. We become light magnets. Jesus' arrival means that that's already happening, that it can happen. That's why Jesus tells his disciples, not you will be the light of the world. He says you are the light of the world. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5. For you were once in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. So live as children of light. That's the present reality. It can be your reality. It should be the reality of the church. That's what we're struggling for. That's what we're asking God's help for. And to the degree that it is our reality, we can expect to, to bear God's light in this world, maybe in small but nonetheless very real and important ways. You know, when you truly anticipate something, you make ready for it. You live in light of it. If you register for a class in September, you buy your books a few months in advance. If you decide to sign up for a marathon, you start practicing a few months in advance. When the light of God dawns in our souls, we become present light bearers. This is not an abstract thing. It beckons to be crowned with action. Now, what might that involve? How might we carry out this vision? How might we carry this vision? Let me give you a few representative pictures in closing. First, thought of a group of politicians I've heard about. They work in Washington, D.C., they meet every week to pray, and they lay their hearts open and bare to one another. And guess what? They're not from the same party. They often have fierce policy disagreements, yet in a context marked by terrible prejudicial animosity, these guys and girls join in worship, and they share relationships of profound trust and goodwill and love, just like all those kings lining up in Isaiah. That's a picture of a new world. Or for those of you who are artists, let me tell you about an artist I heard about. 
She got to know some of the homeless people in her city. And a few years ago, she began to collect certain items from them, things that they had picked up out of the trash. And she used those items, bags and cans and cartons and buttons, to fashion huge portraits of her homeless friends, portraits which capture their beauty, a beauty that can be hard to see sometimes the way things presently are. That's the preview of what's to come, people transformed, people transfigured in ways that we can scarcely imagine. Let me give you a last example. The 9.30 service didn't get this one. Bobby Kennedy's speech in the immediate aftermath of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., given on the back of a pickup truck in a ghetto neighborhood of Indianapolis. He was the one who broke the horrible news to all the people who had gathered there that day. When I hear this speech, it always wrecks me. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day and in this difficult time for our nation, it is perhaps well to ask what kind of nation we are and what kind of direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, you can feel, be filled with bitterness and hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country into greater polarization, or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King Jr. did, to understand and to comprehend and to replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that has spread across our land with an effort to understand and compassion and love. What we need is not division. What we need is not hatred. What we need is not violence and lawlessness, but love and wisdom and compassion towards one another and a feeling of justice for those of us who still suffer in this country. And so I ask you, all of you tonight, to return home, to pray for the King family, but more importantly, to say a prayer for our country. We can do well. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, and we will have difficult times in the future. So let us dedicate ourselves to what was written so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and to make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say our, a prayer for our country and for our people. There were many riots across the United States that night, but there was no riot in Indianapolis. Can our speech be like that? Such words glimpse at God's future. You get a taste of the pie before it's time for dessert. I want to be part of that. I can be part of that. That's what the Bible tells us. You can too. These are just illustrations of what it might involve. Why don't we use our lives to add more illustrations? Will you take part? The light is shining. One day that light's going to get even brighter, not just for us, not just for our souls, but for the whole world. The darkness will never overcome it. That offers joy for the world.